A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this week's episode, Jerry White talks about the housing crisis that developed in London during and after the First World War. Jerry is visiting professor of history at Birkbeck, University of London, and the author of Zeppelin Nights, London in the First World War, which will be published by Random House next year. You can read his article, No Room to Live, in the November issue of History Today, which is out now. Here he is, talking to History Today's deputy editor, Charlotte Crowe. So, Jerry, I wondered if I could start by asking you to sort of paint a picture of London on the eve of the First World War. Yes. Well, it's a city of something like 7.2 million people compared to something like 8.2 now. And it is a city, I think, very much riven by conflict, uh, particularly conflicts based around class. That's, you know, the industrial struggle around uh, women's rights and the vote, which was hugely contentious in London in in 1914 and where there were quite a few little bomb attacks by suffragettes. Um, And of course it was also a city to a certain extent divided among the political class at least by Ireland uh, over the question of home rule. So I think you know we tend to think about London on the eve of the First World War as some sort of glorious sunny Gentlemen versus players cricket match, you know. But, but fact, actually, it was much more tense, much more dominated by issues around class and industrial struggle. And there were a number of strikes, you know, in London in 1914, the largest of which was the building lockout, which uh, had stopped most building sites from proceeding uh, since the early part of the winter and was still going, and still hard to settle, even after the 4th of August 1914. So this is a conflict-ridden city in very many ways. So when war broke out in the summer of 1914, um, what was the the first sort of uh, physical impact of that on, on, on Londoners? Yeah. I mean, there was an impact almost straight away, I think. Um, oddly, given the very tense nature of London society in the first eight months of the year, heal, uh, London was an extraordinary healer. 
so that the industrial disputes almost all vanished within days. The building lockout took, I think, about uh, two or three weeks to sort out, but even that was done by the end of August. Um, the suffragette actions almost immediately stopped, and most of the leaders of the suffragettes threw themselves behind the war effort. So a massive patriotic drive kicked in, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Classes? I mean, it came, as it, you know, as we all know, the war was a huge surprise for most people. It had crept up on Londoners and indeed the nation, you know, behind their backs. And then there was uh, quite a vociferous anti-war movement, which had a lot of purchase in the capital, until the 3rd and 4th of August, when after the Germans invaded Belgium, there was a feeling, I think, of popular revulsion against that German action. And almost everyone, almost everyone, swept behind uh, a patriotic move to war in order to, you know, protect poor little Belgium, which was, mm -hmm. you know, a perfectly reasonable position for most people to take, and to stop I think, you know, German aggrandizement and uh, domination of Europe. So, so yeah, by, by the 4th of August, London was almost united in a way that it hadn't been for some years. And there are manifestations on the street from day one, generally from reservists returning to their barracks to be called up. Um, and people begin queuing at the recruiting offices within days. Um, army lorries moving, moving soldiers on the streets because London after all is the great sort of entrainment centre for the British army uh, and so soldiers so are So men in uniform beginning in, to appear Exactly, either marching or singly and all heading for the railway stations you know, particularly Waterloo, Victoria, London Bridge to get them near to camps on the south coast, or as close to the south coast as possible. So it very quickly became a city of, of physical flux, yep. with men presumably leaving in vast numbers, out, moving out of their homes. Yes, that's right. You've got, um, almost from the outset, you know, you've got the call-up of reserves. Um, and so something like uh, 100,000 London men are pretty quickly moving towards getting into uniform. I mean, there, there's a huge shortage of uniform uh, at the very start. But yeah, they're going back to the, the army or navy that they'd left some years before. So moving on to the notion of a housing crisis, can you, can you tell us how, how that began to manifest itself and what you mean by a crisis? Yeah, well, the, the, um, the, the crisis was, I think, quite extraordinary and sort of slightly well pretty much unanticipated but it had a number of origins one was no houses virtually no houses were built in London from 1914 there'd been the building lockout anyway but that had really only covered the most sort of prestigious sites um, but there were immediate shortages of building labour uh, because men you know, had gone men had gone there was an immediate shortage of building materials because so many temporary buildings were needed by the army. So when carpenters maybe found themselves out of work in London in August 1914, by September, they've been shipped out 
to Dover um, and you know, Southampton, and you know, to, to, to build temporary structures for the troops. So there's virtually no building in London, virtually no building. The only sort of major exceptions are, are the Wellhall Estate in um, uh, Greenwich, which was built for Woolwich workers. So it's, you know, for the... Um, for the arsenal. For the arsenal, which is the greatest munitions factory in the country by far. Uh, so as well as you've got the supply completely drying up, you have an increase in demand almost immediately because the arsenal moves from, during the course of the war, you know, 15,000 15, workers, I think it is, in, in 1914, to about 75,000. Many of them, of course, are women. But many of the skilled engineers are coming from all over the country to the Woolwich Arsenal. And they have nowhere to live. I mean, every, every room, you know, is is hard to find, rents immediately begin going up. So was London caught on the hop in that respect? I mean, the political classes, were they, did they take action to, to try and solve that problem of how to house... No, I mean, action came slowly. Um, the Wellhall estate began to be built uh, from about 1915, which was fairly swift. And once it, you know, they decided, government had decided to uh, construct the estate, it moved very quickly indeed. But the greatest problem with the sort of influx of this, the fact that the supplier dried up and an influx of workers into London meant that rents rose. That was the biggest problem of 1914 to 1915. And rent control was only very belatedly brought in at um, more or less Christmas 1915. So... You know that it, that took it was it was against so many liberal and indeed obviously conservative instincts that rents should be frozen, and it was only after pretty extensive rent strikes in Glasgow, Birmingham, London, and elsewhere that the government belatedly moved to rent control from the very end of 1915. That stopped the 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 problem of rising rents, but it did not provide any more houses. Um, and, you know, you've got an additional problem that because middle class people are losing servants, yeah. uh, men are joining up if they've got male servants in the household, women are then, you know, leaving domestic service mm. to work in war industries from about May 1915 in particular. Um, some large London houses become redundant, really. So it had a social impact, quite a profound social impact on... Absolutely. Middle-class Londoners start looking desperately for smaller flats. This, this is an amazing moment, shift. shift, in the history of the flat in London. Is it the first time we really see apartment living... Well, I think it's... The, it's, it's um, you've seen apartments before, you know, Albert Hall Mansions built in about 1887, I think, so you've got some middle-class building since about the 1870s, for middle-class flat occupation. But flats have all, you know, were always thought of as a slightly alien, you know, especially Parisian. A European concept. Exactly. And were not terribly popular among the middle classes. But I think the First World War definitely gave a real push to the movement towards flats, and it never went back. And so that at the end of, you know, the war... 
there are enormous mansions empty in Mayfair, but no, uh, no middle class, you know, no middle class flats are um, empty at all. And the Mayfair mansions begin to get broken up into flats. So once building labour becomes available again, uh, many speculators with large West End properties in their hands immediately begin to break them up into into different uh, into smaller dwellings. So it really had a pretty vast economic effect on the capital and altered socially and politically the natural order, well not the natural order of things, but the way in which people had been used to living for quite a long time. It certainly did. It certainly did for the middle classes. And for the working classes, I suppose it just accentuated, um, you know, the long-term housing problem that had always existed for poor Londoners, that they were always overcrowded, that they always lived in houses where they had to share whatever amenities there were. Almost no working-class house had a bath. Almost no working-class house had hot water on tap. Um, many kitchens were without a sink. Uh, many houses had outside WCs and so on. Uh, and many houses were in poor repair. And all those problems got worse because the demand for housing increased and the supply had completely dried up. So I was just going to ask you to finish off, what was the legacy of the crisis then as far as housing policy is concerned? And obviously now in London, many people feel we're experiencing a similar yeah. housing crisis. Are there parallels between the two that we well, can draw? Um, yes, I mean, was, the wartime housing problem in London really continued till about 1923, when at last there was a return to extensive building, particularly in the suburbs. One of the other components of this housing crisis in the First World War is that working class people were better off than ever before um, in history, in terms of working class Londoners, largely through full employment. And many people wanted to spend money on housing, but there was no housing to spend it on. And I think you definitely got two urges converging to give a massive injection to suburban building from mm -hmm. 1923 on. One is the desire for middle-class, smaller housing, which was more manageable, uh, because although lots of women returned to domestic service, they did not return in the numbers that they'd left. So there was a desire for modern, labour-saving houses, which did not require so much domestic service labour before. And you had a desire, um, a sort of mirror image of desire among working class people who had money to spend, who could not do anything to improve their working, their living conditions in terms of housing during the war, but were determined not to put up with that situation. And so you had an extension of suburban working class building, either through council estates, which you know were extensive in numbers in the 1920s, the whole of Dagenham, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, housing for over 100,000 people is a 1920s phenomenon. It came out of this desire for modern living accommodation among working people. Um, and so these two things 
generated an enormous demand for suburban building um, in, the, in the 1920s and 30s. And was there also the feeling that uh, the slums ought to be cleared away and that regeneration was a, a post-war criteria, interwar post-war criteria? Yes. Um, slum clearance had stopped in the war. I mean, I think there was a, there were a couple of buildings built on the Tabard Garden Estate in Southwark. Um, I think actually it was only one block of flats. Otherwise, slum clearance stopped, and so parts of the Tabard Garden Estate, which had been condemned as unfit for human habitation in 1912, were reoccupied, were, were, had become empty. The tenants had been rehoused, but were now let again. I see. And the housing conditions there were you know, condemned by coroners, by MPs, and it was just dreadful. Uh, and so the, the cessation of slum clearance had happened between 1914 and 19... actually running into 1920, more or less... Um, gave a push to the slum clearance programme, which was also extensive in central London from about 1922-23. So it was a, a shift, the like of which London has yeah. probably not seen since, would yeah. you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. It, 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 that happens in the 1920s and 30s, that enormous shift to suburban growth. But it happens because, as a result of that, yeah, that First World War part, moment. I mean, one might argue, well, it would have happened anyway. anyway. But I think this this extraordinary increase in working class spending power and the frustration that you know working class people had in not being able to find any decent accommodation at all. It's also one of the one of the reasons I think why um, this is a long term connection too. Uh, Working people began to think that Labour was the party for them in London. Even by the end of 1918, Labour was calling for the construction of a, middle, of a million working-class homes. And Labour seized the housing problem as its agenda. Uh, and Labour, with all a bit of a flash in the pan, because it didn't stay Labour for long, but Labour won many of the boroughs in the 1919 local elections, I think, as a result of... The housing, of the housing of the housing problem, yeah, and and their commitment to do something about the housing crisis. And we'll see what happens uh, in London. Well, it will. <laughs> it, it'll be very interesting because I, I think that uh, you know, uh, and I'm no great expert on on the. I think very many aspects that are sort of feeding into the current London housing problem. But this enormous dissatisfaction that's building up between you know, people who have aspirations to do something to improve their housing on the one hand, and the absolute inability of London to provide sufficient, decent homes for people on the other, you know, is a crisis beginning to brew and that really has to be sorted out. Watch this space. Jerry White, thank you very much.